0: Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn there to 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. You know, the Bible is a painfully honest book. For instance, if you were making up the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection, you likely wouldn't keep highlighting the doubt and dim-wittedness of the disciples. You wouldn't insert a bit about all of them running and hiding at this key moment when the Savior is crucified. You wouldn't write that they rolled their eyes when they were first told that Jesus was raised. The Bible is a painfully honest book, in part because it's real history, and so it doesn't shy away from the real fact. The Bible is a painfully honest book, also, though, because it shows us the painful problem of sin. It shows us the human condition that we all share, and we shouldn't look at that human condition through rose colored glasses. Apparently, there's a new app out that takes 15 pounds off of your selfies. (laughs) Well, the Bible is not that kind of app. The Bible is a kind of mirror, it does show us, it's a picture, and it's one that's not always flattering. It shows us sin and sinners again and again and again, and because we share that identity of humanity with all people of this world, including those here recorded in scripture, the Bible shows us a picture of ourselves and our problem. But like a CAT scan or an MRI that reveals a deadly growth inside, that's the start, even the painful start, but the start of the path towards help and hope and healing and health. So today we come to two pretty dark chapters in the Bible, 1 Samuel 27 and 28. Two chapters and two stories. Chapter 27 is a story about David who's once again under the threat of Saul and his army but this time he responds in a different way. Then chapter 28 is a story about Saul under the threat of the Philistine army and we could say he responds in a typical but more extreme way than what we've seen before. Both chapters are windows into fear and desperation. That's what hold the stories together. To different degrees and in different ways, both chapters give us a window into desperation turning ugly. Ugly. These are ugly chapters. The first we can call, Desperate for Protection, David Flees to Philistia, to the Philistines. He's desperate for protection, and he flees to the land of the Philistines. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. There are four chapters the story that we're going to see in chapter 27. The first of these four parts is shown to us succinctly here in verse 1. We should call it something like this. The same danger, but a new doubt. A new doubt. You see, David is right to be skeptical of Saul's glowing affirmation and commitment to relent that we saw last week in chapter 26. In verse 21 of chapter 26, Saul said, I will no more do you harm. Paul, uh, Sorry, David's right to be skeptical. Remember, there was something similar that happened at the end of chapter 24, outside the cave. There, David confronted Saul, and Saul relented somewhat. He, he backed off somewhat. He, he acknowledged that David was the rightful king of Israel and that God would hand it to him someday. That chapter ended with the two parting ways peacefully, in a sense. They didn't run away from each other. They just walked away. But you get to chapter 26, which is really the flow of the narrative. 24 ends, and that story picks up at 26. And Saul gets some new intel on David's whereabouts, and he immediately assembles 3,000 men and goes on the hunt, despite his repentance and relenting in chapter 24. So David's right to be skeptical now about Saul's trustworthiness. But there's a new kind of doubt going on here in verse 1. A new kind of doubt that isn't good or or reasonable. The Hebrew word behind that word perish in verse 1 is important. David said, I shall surely perish. Literally, it's I shall be swept away. It's an unusual Hebrew word. It's not used very often in the Bible. And when it is, it's used in powerful terms. Like, Israel will be swept away if they do not keep Yahweh as their God. Or Saul will be swept away in God's judgment. David is saying, I shall be swept away if I stay here. He states it as a certainty. I shall be swept away one day. He doesn't know when, but he's so certain that Saul will one day get him But this is all new. This should be surprising to us. In fact, this is contrary to a number of things that we've seen so far. One, it's contrary to God's promises to David. God has promised that he will be king. God has promised that he will bring it to pass, not by might, not by sword, in his timing. David has heard those promises from God through the prophet multiple times. He's heard them repeated from Jonathan, his good friend and confidant. His doubt now in chapter 27 is also contrary to the evidence we've seen in recent chapters. How many times have we seen David slip through Saul's hand? How many times has God protected David from Saul again and again and again? In fact, a fitting summary of these chapters in the 20s is 23 verse 14. Saul sought him every day. But God did not give David into Saul's hand. It's a fitting summary of these chapters. David's doubt's contrary to the evidence of what God has been doing. David's doubt is contrary to the assurances that have recently been spoken to David by others, such as Abigail. Turn back to chapter 25. Chapter 25 and verse 29. Abigail said to David, If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out is from the hollow of a sling. David needed this encouragement and he got it. He even heard something similar from Saul. Go back to chapter 24. Saul confesses in verse 20. Behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He said the same in chapter 26. 26 verse 25, Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. And if we had the time, we could also look at David's own recent testimony. In chapters 24 and 26, he gives speeches that affirm his own belief in the promises of God to bring the kingship to his hand in God's timing and in God's way. David knows better than this. He's right to be skeptical of Saul's words about repenting and relenting and no longer pursuing, but As we move from chapter 26, where Saul said that stuff, into chapter 27, there's no change in the promises of God. There's no real change in the circumstances as we go from 26 to 27. He's still in danger. So? There's no real change in Saul's capabilities. He didn't get a a new weapon or a million more soldiers. And most importantly, there's no change in God as you move from chapter 26 to 27. But there is change in David's heart. He says literally in verse 1, there is no good for me. There is no good for me. Here I must go to the Philistines. Perhaps we can only understand the change of heart and perspective in view of the relentlessness of the suffering David has been facing these chapters in the 20's occupy a decade or more this has been a long drawn out saga he has been near death and in constant danger and without home and on the run and turned over by that person turned in by another we can understand how it would be unnerving. We can understand how someone might crack, we could say. Even not at the most dangerous moment, David cracked. We can understand that. It doesn't mean that David's off the hook. It doesn't put David totally in the right, but but it's understandable. We can have sympathy knowing those kind of circumstances. As someone once said, murder mysteries are for the enjoyment of the readers, not the characters going through it. Right? This drama unfolding in these chapters is intriguing and riveting and nail-biting and we've enjoyed that drama unfold. Not so, David, as the recipient. It makes us sympathetic, but it also reminds us that David was a man like us. A sinner. For all his nobility, his humility, his trust and confidence in God, where Saul is inches away from a sword in his hand or a spear in his hand and he lets God deal with him, takes no vengeance. We also know that David is a man like us, a sinner. And we already saw something of that back in chapter 25 when David resolved retribution when someone, Nabal, rudely refused to give David and his men hospitality. David said, Guys, put on your swords. Let's go and let's kill him and kill everyone he knows. Thankfully, in that chapter, Abigail intervened. She talked David down, and he was rescued. But in this story, in chapter 27, the onion of David's sinful heart is going to get peeled back another layer or two without intervention. His desperation turns ugly. Which leads to a precarious plan. Secondly, a precarious plan. Look at verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel. Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And so it worked. It worked. But notice how it begins. It says David went over in verse 2. Literally, that's David crossed over. But that probably implies more than geography. He crossed over. He switched teams, in a sense. He joined with them. And who's the them? It's the Philistines, those people who've plagued Israel for hundreds of years. They're like cockroaches, but venomous and vicious, and they won't disappear, they won't go away, they won't stop fighting. David has fled to Achish, the king of those long-hated nemesis. David tried to flee to the Philistines and to Achish before, back in chapter 21. Remember how that went? David went to the Philistines, not this time with 600 men and their families, but himself alone. And he tried to hide. And that stealthy approach didn't work. It seemed like maybe hours before they knew who he was and he was bound. And his only way out was to act crazy. We could say he escaped by the skin of his teeth, but it would be more fitting to say he escaped by the spit of his beard. But this time, however, in chapter 27, he flees to the Philistines, and the plan worked. Saul no longer sought him. So it would seem like in God's providence, God is indicating, all right, wait it out. Back in chapter 26, David had resolved that he won't take out Saul. He said, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. Part of the game for David is a waiting game. So Philistia doesn't seem like a bad, day, a bad place to hide out if you can, to wait if you can. And it looks like it is a waited out plan when we read in verse 5. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes... Let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now remember, David has 600 men with him, and We learn in this chapter also their households, their families. This could be up to 3,000 people with David. I'm sure they're all very relieved to find out that Saul no longer chases them and to find out that a small village town has been granted to them. That said, think of what this looks like to people back home. What does this look like to Israelites back home? Could you imagine during the Civil War, Robert E. Lee is granted Rhode Island and he moves up north? I mean, that would be a big change, right? If that, if that was a headline on the news, it would be very, very big news. And in those days, sad for the South. Well, here's David, the king to be, the one who's slain his tens of thousands. He's now been given a large land grant from the Philistines and looks to be settling down and getting quite comfy there. And from there, the story spirals even further down. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gusharites, the, Gizer, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure. To the land of Egypt. Now, David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, David has done this. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant." ah uh, so david and his men apparently are not quiet village farmers they are mercenaries mercenaries and raiders for the philistine king they made raids against the gusherites and the gerzites and the Amalekites. who are these people well these were gentiles in the land from of old so from one angle this is not a bad thing in a sense it's a good thing in a sense From one angle, this is what God put Israel there to do. God said that Israel would be an instrument of divine judgment on these wicked nations that were occupying the land. It was a mission still yet to be completed. So in that sense, David is doing just what? Deuteronomy 30, sorry, uh, Numbers 33 and Deuteronomy 7 said would happen. On the other hand... David was ruthlessly thorough. He would leave neither man nor woman alive. He wouldn't leave them alive unless they would, unless they would bring to news in Gath what David was about and, and what he was up to. Such was his custom. That word custom, it means it was his policy. It could be translated justice. It was his justice. It was the way he operated. And this for 16 months. And on top of that, he lied to the king. Verse 10, Achish would ask, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the Negev of Judah and others. In other words, against Israelites. He didn't really kill Israelites, but he'd tell Achish that he did. Some commentators try to soften this a bit and suggest that David was being purposely vague and so he was talking about places and not people when he mentioned these different Negev's. But no, it won't work. He's lying. There's no way around it. So now we see the danger of the doubt that began in verse 1. Now we see what incredible lengths David went to to protect himself and his men when he was among the Philistines. He was so committed to selling Achish, his commitment, which we know wasn't real, that he was willing to kill men, women, children. What a different David this is than the one we saw in chapter 24 who commits to the Lord. What will happen between Saul and David? What a different David this is than the one of chapter 26 who gives Saul his spear back before he walks away. What a very different David this is than the one in the story of Goliath, where David said to Goliath, Not by might, not by sword, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give the victory. It gets worse still. Two more parts to this story, and we'll look at those quite quickly. So third, a new dilemma. A new dilemma arises as you turn from chapter 27 into the first couple verses of chapter 28. Verse 1. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army against Israel. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. The story stops there. If we looked into verse 3, we'd see it's about Saul. And the rest of the chapter, of chapter 28, is about Saul. This narrative, ending here at chapter 28, verse 2, picks up again in chapter 29. Here's what chapter 29 tells us. It shows us, fourth, a providential intervention. A providential intervention. We won't read the verses there. We'll look at them in weeks to come. But here's what happens in chapter 29. You know the dilemma. David is in the Philistines, with the Philistines, among the Philistines, enlisted among the Philistines, and the Philistines are going to war against Israel. But God intervenes like this. The captains of the Philistine army don't agree with Achish that you can trust David in a battle scene with a sword on his hip. They say, no way, we're not doing this. You're crazy. No way, he can't be trusted. No way. He'll, we'll get out there and he'll kill us and not, not them. Remember, he, he's killed his tens of thousands. And so Achish has no choice but to let David and all his men and their families go. It's a providential intervention. So the dilemma is solved not with David's holiness or resolve or wisdom, simply in God's providence. Once again, he's rescued by the Philistines of all things. Now, before we move on to the second half of this message and look at Saul's moment of desperation, let's try to crack the nut of David's doubt and fear, and downward declension here in chapter 27. What went wrong with David? This isn't the David we know. Are there any clues in the text that tell us where it went wrong? I think maybe there is in verse 1. Chapter 27, verse 1, it says, David said in his heart, I shall perish one day. David said to himself, We're always preaching to ourselves. Did you notice this? Sometimes we're proactively and positively preaching to ourselves. And oftentimes there's just this voice talking and we're listening. Chapter 27 really is an exercise in bad preaching to self. I ended the service last week by talking about that category we so often see in the Psalms of preaching to self, moving one from this doubt to this praise. You see, so many times in David's psalms, it begins with lament, and then he moves himself to request, to ask God to do something, to, 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 to help somehow. Then he goes into remembrance. For you have done, for you will, you are, that kind of thing. And then he moves to resolve. I will, I will praise you, I will trust you. While I have my being, I will sing your praises. And that automatically leads into praise. You see it again and again in David. Lament, request, then remembrance about who God is and what he said. Resolve up what God wants him to do. He talks himself up. And it leads to praise. Remembrance and resolve, those two in the middle there, those are the stuff of preaching to yourself. And so many of the Psalms like that. Our Psalms in the 50s, and many of the Psalms in the 50s were written while David was in 1 Samuel on the run from Saul, ever in danger, always in caves, always opposed, hated, and under great threat. He writes of lament and then request, remembrance resolve and praise. You should read these knowing what, what we've been through in 1 Samuel. You should read through Psalms in the 50s. If you have a study Bible, it'll tell you when it was written and, and which ones relate to David as he was in 1 Samuel. Uh, Psalms in the 50s show us that trajectory of David thinking through his suffering and preaching to himself. But you get the feeling here in chapter 27 David hasn't been preaching to himself. He's been listening to himself. He's being passive. His heart said within him, they will surely get me. Saul and his men will surely get me. There's no psalm written from this chapter. There's no psalm we can go to and say, ah, David wrote this as he was fleeing to the Philistines for 16 months. There's no psalm written there. You get the feeling David wasn't preaching to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in London in the last century. Wrote a great book called Spiritual Depression. He talks about this concept of preaching to yourself or listening to yourself. It's is so worth quoting. It's a couple paragraphs, but listen. He says, we must learn to take ourselves in hand. The man in Psalm 42, a message from Psalm 42. He was not content to just lie down and commiserate with himself. He does something about it. He takes himself in hand. He does something which is even more important still, he talks to himself. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this. We allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you first wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean, he says? I love Lloyd-Jones. Christian, preach to yourself. Go from lament. Yes, bring your lament to the Lord openly. But let it turn to request and remembrance and resolve and eventually praise. David is so often a positive example of this to us in the Psalms. Here he's an example that reminds us of what happens when we don't. When we listen to self. Now let's turn to Saul in the rest of chapter 28. We could call this section desperate for guidance Saul flees to a witch he's desperate for guidance and he flees to a witch again we'll see four parts to this story and you'll also notice that though it's a very different story than the one we just saw in chapter 27 with David the two chapters really do follow a very similar pattern so watch for that as we study this chapter with Saul we see first fear and silence Fear and silence. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. It's fear and silence. There are two statements in verse 3 that look irrelevant, maybe even, well, repetitious or bizarre. The first, Samuel had died. That's repetitious. We saw that already. Why is that getting repeated here? It doesn't seem to flow. And then Saul had thrown out all the mediums and necromancers from the land. That seems bizarre. Mediums were spiritual people, fortune tellers. Necromancers were those who communicate with the dead. Saul had thrown them out. These are not unimportant or irrelevant details. These are foreshadows for us. We'll see. But back to Saul's fear. We're introduced, or reintroduced, we should say, to Saul's fear. Reintroduced. Boy, we've seen it a lot. Almost from the very first scene, we've seen Saul, though tall, very sheepish. At his own kingly inauguration, where was he? Hiding in the luggage room. Hiding, like a boy. Like a scared boy. And then we keep seeing fear. Very afraid. He grew afraid. He became afraid of David again and again and again. And now there's a heightened fear, I think, as we come to chapter 28. It's heightened because there are some new developments. One development is that David has joined forces with the Philistines. Saul knows this. Remember, that's why Saul didn't go into the Philistine land and gave up chasing David back in chapter 27. Imagine this then, your two greatest enemies, Philistines, David, have now joined forces. The one who's killed his tens of thousands with the toughest army around that's always been trouble, they've now joined forces and are marching in. And this seems to be, this new battle plan of the Philistines seems to be not just another battle, but conquering. You see in verse 4 when it says they they gathered at Shunem. If you notice this on the map, what's happening is the Philistines are going to the middle of, of Judah and they're dividing, dividing and conquering. This is a conquering sort of plan. This is no ordinary battle like we've seen before. And Saul sees it. He saw the army of the Philistines. It's at this point that we read that he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. He once led trembling soldiers into courage and in a victorious battle back in chapter 13. Now, he leads no one. He's alone. He trembles. Once again and evermore, Saul is not acting as a king But he's simply trembling. And there's another reason for Saul's heightened fear now. Verse 6. He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. In these days, godly men would ask the Lord for green light or red light on battles. Will you be with us? Will you go ahead of us? Will you protect us? Will you give us the victory or no? And sometimes the Lord would say yes, and sometimes the Lord would say no. And sometimes the Lord wouldn't speak. Sometimes the Lord would speak through dreams, and sometimes the Lord would speak through prophets or priests. They also had this thing, Urim or Thummim. And really, it's, um, no one knows exactly how it works, but, but probably something like a flip of a coin. The priest actually had it on his vest. It was probably, maybe one was red and one was green. I don't know. But it was that kind of thing. God would communicate through these things, and, and he's not here. He's not here. There's silence. So now we know why verse 3 reminded us that Samuel the prophet had died. There's no word from the Lord. The prophet is the means by which God speaks. Priests are sometimes the means by which God speaks. But what happened to them? In chapter 22, Saul in his rage had all the priests killed. Except one that got away. And he went to David he's with David, not Saul. So David has, we could say, the voice of God with him, but Saul has no one. David has a God compass in his pocket, and Saul has nothing. It's fear and silence. In a sense, Saul should be quite used to God's silence. God hasn't spoken to him since he spoke through Samuel the prophet back in chapter 15. And that chapter ended by saying, Samuel never spoke to Saul again. Saul should be used to God's silence, but in another sense, God's silence is apparently growing deafening, troubling, in a scary sort of way. He can take it no longer. He's desperate for guidance. How desperate? Well, secondly, desperation and divination. Desperation and divination. Verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. His servants said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring, bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know that Saul, has, what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her, by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you he said bring up Samuel for me when the woman saw Samuel she cried out with a loud voice and the woman said to Saul why have you deceived me you are Saul the king said to her do not be afraid what do you see the woman said to Saul I see a god coming up out of the earth he said to her what is his appearance and she said an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Saul's desperation turns to divination. He turns to a witch. Now, it's a testimony of Saul's orthodoxy and his fidelity that we learned earlier. He had banned all witchcraft and exiled all mediums from the land. And this is just what Deuteronomy 18 insisted When you come into the land, you shall not follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall be no one who practices divination or tells fortunes or a sorcerer or a medium or a necromancer, one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things, God says, is an abomination to the Lord. And it's because of these abominations that the Lord is driving them out before you. This is the whole reason I'm sending you in. Their wickedness is this great. Necromancers, mediums, sorcerers, fortune tellers. And yet what horrible irony now here in chapter 28. Saul, the one who had banned the mediums and necromancers, now seeks one for his own. What a horrible irony that he swears by the Lord. As the Lord lives, he promises to do the witch no harm. He pleads with her to call up the dead, which the Lord forbade. And he swears by the Lord that, that she should do it. The witch screeches. You can imagine it's that kind of witch sound. She screeches when she, when she sees Samuel the prophet. She screeches one because she suspects only the king would ask for the prophet. She knows it's Saul. But also perhaps because she knows something of the incongruity of necromancing the prophet of God. Some sins you can kind of sit in them for a little bit as long as you can keep all this other stuff, this Bible stuff or God stuff over here to the side. You can look at certain things on a computer screen, but you can imagine if Bible verses started showing up on the side, ah, you'd know the hypocrisy. She screeches, rightly so. This is what they hear from Samuel. Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, "'Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up?' And Saul answered, "'I'm in great distress.'" For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord back in chapter 15 and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Not in heaven, in the grave, among the dead. The Lord will give the armies of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Again, the story drips with horrible irony. Samuel attests, Why would you seek me when it's the Lord who isn't speaking to you? Why don't you make it right with him? He says, Why would you call on me when I'm the one that first spoke that judgment to you the first time? We're witnessing The Last Days of Saul's Hopeless Downward Spiral. D.A. Carson, commenting on this chapter, writes, The heart of Saul's sin is what it has been for a long time. He wants a domesticated God, a God like the genie in Aladdin's lamp, one pledged to do wonderful things for him as long as he holds the lamp. He somehow feels that David now holds the lamp and wishes he could get the power back. But does not perceive that the real God is to be worshipped, reverenced, obeyed, feared, and loved unconditionally. Here is a man who thinks of himself as at the center of the universe. Whatever gods exist must serve him. If the covenant God of Israel does not help him as he wishes, then Saul is prepared to find other gods. This is the black heart. Of all idolatry. Now, back up to a technical detail, you might be wondering whether this thing of a witch calling forth Samuel and him speaking is that real? Is it a dream? Is it demons? Is Samuel really called forth? What's going on here? Is this spiritually happening? Yeah, I think it is. You see, God can allow his servant Samuel to be called forth from the grave. By a wicked witch in order to use Samuel to speak judgment to Saul once again. This stuff's real. God doesn't tell his people to stay away from divination because it's not real or because it doesn't work or because it's a waste of time. He tells his people to stay away from this stuff because it's satanic. It's real. Stuff's really happening. So Christians, let's just get this settled if you don't know this. Okay? Seances and Ouija boards or maybe more popularly closer to home maybe fortune tellers or maybe more popularly closer to home astrology. These things are off limits for us. These things are off limits for us. Do you know why? We have the Lord. And that makes all the difference. We don't need anything else. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need a fortune cookie to find out tomorrow will be eh, okay. I already know it's gonna be eh, okay, but I know a whole lot more. Okay, back to the story. What did Samuel say? We read it already. It's this thirdly Saul gets his revelation. And he gets repeated judgment. He gets what he wanted. He wanted a word. He wanted revelation. He wanted insight. Not the kind he hoped for. He wanted to know what would happen tomorrow. And he found out. He'll die. He'll die. That's the only additional thing added to what's already been spoken to Saul in judgment before. Back in chapter 15, Saul, sorry Samuel said to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. Now the time stamp is upon it. Tomorrow this will happen. Fourth and lastly, we come to the outcome of all this. Saul's reaction to, Saul's, to Samuel's words of judgment. We could call this without God and without hope. Without God, without hope. Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul the witch. And when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and I've listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat in the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took four Flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Notice the progression of fear in this chapter. Saul was afraid and trembled greatly. And then he was in great distress. Then he was filled with fear and then terrified. Notice the progression of loneliness in the life of Saul in the story that chapters have led to led us to thus far no counselor no prophet no priest no god no hope his only comfort on his last day his only help to him in his final hours is a witch a witch He's comforted and fed by a witch. Even worse, he obeys her. She leads him. She says, obey me. At first he refuses, but then he listens to her and his men. Reminds us a bit of Adam in the garden. The woman gave him the fruit and he ate, he told God. And God said, he listened to the voice of the woman Dare we say, Saul is almost recreating the fall here at the end of this meal. He's almost giving us an anti-last supper. It's his last supper. He'll go out the next day and die. It says the last words here in verse 25. They ate, then they rose, and they went away that night. Jesus did the same, didn't he? He had his last supper with his disciples and they rose and went away that night. There's a similarity there. There's another theme that's very similar here to our Lord Jesus. Ironically, it's shown to us in Saul, not in a one to one comparison, but in an inversive way. Forsaken by God, rightly so, Saul went out the next day and died. The night of his last supper, Jesus also went out to die the next day, and he also was forsaken by God. Not because he rejected the word of the Lord, but because he was forsaken for us. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the Father's wrath, not for his wrongdoings, but for our sin. He was forsaken that we might be accepted. And that's our only hope for being accepted. It's not that we're better than Saul, and maybe we'll get in because of that. No, we all deserve to be forsaken. Back when Samuel first rebuked Saul for his sin, Samuel said, Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Saul's disobedience was as the sin of divination. It was witch work. It was satanic. All sin is. Even Saul's half obedience in chapter 15 is as the sin of divination. Lying is as the sin of divination. Gossip is as the sin of divination. Harboring bitterness in our hearts towards others is as the sin of divination. We are all by nature very much like Saul, even if you've never played with a Ouija board. And so we all deserve God forsaking us as he did Saul. Except that Jesus was forsaken and forsaken in our place and forsaken that we would be accepted and that gift of his righteousness and his sacrifice comes to us only through faith only through belief only by trusting only by knowing this is my only hope and this is all my righteousness i hope you know that and believe that i hope you've embraced that with all your heart I hope today would be a day of salvation for you. I hope you would seek him while he still may be found. Don't let your end be like Saul's. Let me quickly, within just a minute and a half, offer a few observations or applications for Christians here. Number one, not all spiritual beginnings have good endings. Not all of those who begin something with God end well with God. 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us because they were no doubt not of us. Not totally, not really, not truly. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. So here's a great and powerful reminder of the Christian's need to persevere, to press on, to keep on believing, to stay quick in our repentance, to be quick and gentle and sensitive in our spiritual life of the Lord. There is something worse than David's desperation back in chapter 27, something worse even than his downward spiral. It's when God doesn't intervene when we're altogether abandoned by him. Secondly, religious language and vague commitments are no indication of spiritual vitality. Saul's a great lesson for us in that. He keeps saying the Lord's name positively until his dying day. He uses words of repentance and vows on the the name of the Lord until his dying day. But he rejected the word, the word of God. He really only wanted God to speak in order to improve his affairs. Thirdly, the word is a matter of eternal life and death. This whole story turns on the word. Saul rejected the word and eventually the word went out from the Lord and Saul had no word, no life, no God, no hope. Without the word, we perish. For Saul, that meant God saying, yes, go, or no, don't. For us, it means this book. We go to the word. Without it, we perish. This word, Deuteronomy 32 says, is no trifle for you. It is your life. It is bread. It is water. It is wine. It is milk. And lastly, in life's moments of desperation, do you want answers, direction, information, guidance, insight, and a solution? Or do you want God? I think that's Saul's key missing ingredient. It's God. He wants to hear from God. He wants information from God. God. He wants a solution by God. He just doesn't want God. What should Saul have done in this chapter? Repent. God's not speaking. Don't you remember why he's not speaking? That's why Samuel the prophet said, why'd you call me? Your problem's with him. It's so foolish. And yet we do it all the time. What Saul should have done is repent and turn to the Lord and pray and And if the Lord is silent, then you keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep pleading. That's what the Psalms show us over and over again. There are all kinds of Psalms when God is silent. And faith perseveres and presses on and pushes and knocks and knocks and knocks and waits. So I ask again, in life's moments of desperation, like Saul, do you want answers, direction, information, insight, and solution? Or do you want God? Let's pray for his help. Bow with me if you wouldn't. Well, Father, we are desperate for your protection. We are desperate for your guidance. And in Jesus, you have given that a millionfold. You've given us eternal spiritual protection. You've given us eternal spiritual guidance. You've given us salvation, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, you've given us each other. All together, Lord, you tell us again and again, you show us again and again that you are our refuge and our strength. Even if the mountains be hurled into the sea, even if the earth would be turned over, you are our God and we can be still and know that you are God thank you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.